My name is Matt. And I'm Umer. You're tuning into Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco socialist podcast based in Toronto. If you like our content and would like to help us make more of it, you can go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and become a patron. Speaking of which, we want to give a shout out to our latest Patreon supporters, Judy and Kyle. In August, four new patrons signed up to support Oats for Breakfast. We hope you'll help us keep up the momentum by becoming a patron today. And actually, one of our patrons, Braden, suggested that we call our episodes Oat Meals, as in each episode is a meal of oats. And uh, the suggestion's especially relevant for this episode because it happens to deal with food. Though, rather than an oat meal, this is perhaps an oink meal. <laughs> that's right, and that's because we're talking about pigs. In this episode, I interview Joseph Anderson about his new book, Capitalist Pigs, which surveys the history of pig farming and the making of capitalism in the United States. You won't hear my voice when we cut to the interview because Matt was the only interviewer, but I'll see you all on the other side. Joseph Anderson is a professor of history at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. He is the executive secretary of the Agricultural History Society and is the author of Capitalist Pigs, Pigs, Pork, and Power in America. Welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Pleased to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You're very welcome. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. So I have to admit, before I read the book, that I doubt power would have been something that came to mind when I was thinking about pigs. So why is power, perhaps the limits of power, such an important concept to understanding the history of pigs in the United States? Yeah, I think that's a great question that really gets to the heart of the discipline of history or any of the uh, social sciences or the humanities disciplines. Without power, we have nothing to study. <laughs> and it turns out when I started writing the book or started doing the research, I really didn't have any idea what the angle was. I knew I was interested in husbandry, uh, knew I was interested in disease control, all sorts of things that kind of typically bubble up in the history of agriculture, history of technology. But the thing that struck me as I started putting pieces together was that, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. Everything we do with animals is a reflection of what we think about ourselves. And so pigs aren't necessarily unique that way. They just happen to be the particular lens that I put on to look at the world. So you could study history of horses, cattle, uh, whatever, and, and see that power relationship. Uh, and I'll just give a quick example. Almost everything we do with animals shows how we think about ourselves. So centuries ago, there was a lot of seasonality in our diet when the berries were coming on, we ate berries. Uh, when there was a lot of game, humans ate a lot of game. And so there was a, just a ton of seasonality. And animals are the same way. But you think about our diet today, if you want strawberries in February or strawberries in June, uh, when they typically come on, you can have them any time of the year. Uh, a lot of times our diet is a flat line with just tiny little tiny little waves in it. That's not the case 300 years ago. And when you look at pigs, it's the exact same thing. They had seasons of feast and famine, just like humans. 
But now that we've brought them under roof, we put them in HVAC systems, we feed them a similar diet throughout the year. Uh, I just think it's a great reflection of our attitudes about ourselves. And that is uh, a power relationship. Right. Uh, something that struck me from one of the opening pages of the book is you talk about how pigs, the lives of pigs and the lives of humans are actually more, uh, much more similar than we think. That, that's quite right. Uh, we think about uh, maybe medical and pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, again, we treat any number of infections with antibiotics. Well, we do the same thing uh, with livestock. We have lots and lots of uh, concerns about everything from disease control to waste management. Um, when you look at a large pig farm today, it may produce as much waste as a small city. And there are all sorts of problems that, uh, that come out of that. Now, problems are normal, so we, we shouldn't get too caught up on that. But uh, you're exactly right. We have waste management systems. We have um, medical procedures. We have biosecurity. Just like we're in the midst of a massive biosecurity issue right now with social distancing, uh, masks and such, uh, that happens on the pig farm too. In fact, there are some, on a super large operation, there are some workers who can't come in contact with other workers from the same operation because they're in a subsection and they would risk cross-contamination if the worker from the gestational area was dealing with the worker from the finishing barn where those animals are ready for market. So again, that kind of concern about health, that concern about well-being, uh, it, it's worth noting that the things we do with those animals, the power we exercise, is often in the name of improved health and improved welfare. It, it's not hard to come up with examples of uh, abuse of animals and peoples and from modern agriculture. But if you think about the root of where these things came from, it really is about improving the quality of life for those animals, uh, making sure that the calories that they consume are used for gaining weight, ultimately for slaughter, of course, but nonetheless, uh, to make sure that the maximum number of animals come to market weight and do so in a healthy manner. Now, if you read the book, and I encourage you to do so, uh, listening audience, you'll find that many, many times things go wrong. Uh, again, that, that's a normal part of our relationship with technology. It's a normal part of agriculture, but there are lots and lots of unintended consequences. Right. Uh, that might be surprising for our listeners and say the animal rights activist movement uh, to hear that modern pig raising processes are about improving the welfare of pigs. Yeah. If you read the literature that the scientists and the land grant universities in the United States and government of Canada, lots and lots of uh, entities, they actually want comfortable animals. Now, uh, again, sometimes being comfortable is not necessarily the best thing that happens to us. Uh, speaking as an overweight middle-aged man, maybe I'm a little too comfortable. Certainly coming from a position of privilege, maybe I am personally too comfortable. Uh, so there's something to be said for the challenges that come with 
some of those historic aspects of livestock raising. Uh, but you're absolutely right to point out healthy animals means more profit for the producer. Mm. Okay. Why don't we step back a bit and I'll just ask you to give us a brief summary of the book. What is this book about? Uh, yeah, this book is about the human-animal relationship. Uh, I, I say it's not really a pig's eye view because it's mostly about how people think and interact with animals. So I'm not necessarily moving the, the interpretive framework forward too far in terms of animal studies. But this book is really about the constant search for finding where the limits are in production and consumption and how humans have attempted to overcome those limits, which I think is the big part of capitalism that goes with this, that goes with this theme, that uh, the, the power that's harnessed in the pursuit of capitalism is always inherently trying to overcome these obstacles. How much faster can we get an animal to market? How much more weight can we help put on that animal who comes to market? Uh, so, what kind of, kind of scientific interventions can we do uh, by the government to help those producers be successful and uh, allow the United States to market X, X number of pounds of pork uh, in a given year and hopefully return votes back for, uh, in exchange for those kinds of bargains. But, but the book is really about searching for those limits and trying to overcome those limits. And it covers a lot of ground and a lot of time periods. And you basically start the colonial period, I would say, in, in North America, and you come more or less right up to the present. And one of the things, again, that struck me uh, in one of the early chapters was your description of pigs as agents of empire. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the role that pigs played in the European colonial project in North America. Yes, I, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. Your, your comment about this book covering a lot of ground, a lot of time, it, it's a ridiculous book to cover 500 years of history in less than 300 pages, but it made it a lot of fun to write and a lot of fun to research. Um, the, the Agents of Empire, I wish I was smart enough to have coined that, but that's a historian in Colorado, uh, Virginia DeJohn Anderson, uh, wrote about animals in general as agents of empire. And I found it to be very, very helpful to move that story of the history of capitalism forward because much of, uh, even though not all of those colonial attempts are done in the name of capitalism, it's very, very apparent that they serve the interests of capitalism. Uh, so the agents of empire, if they are pigs and the settlers are bringing a species to North America that did not exist here. Those animals are incredibly, incredibly sophisticated and good at taking advantage of an ecological niche. Uh, it's, it's been said humans are the ultimate invasive species. In terms of four-legged four -legged animals, uh, hogs have to be uh, right at the top because as omnivores, they can exploit any number of ecosystems. And many of those were ecosystems that uh, indigenous people relied upon. Uh, so as you look at those colonial encounters between settlers and uh, 
First Nations people, they're filled with accounts of conflict, uh, cane breaks, clam beds, forests, uh, devastated by these animals. And those have been traditional hunting grounds and fishing grounds and uh, places where First Nations people gathered the clams and they relied on the waterfowl uh, that are being driven out by the settlers' livestock. It's not just pigs. Uh, cattle are good at it too, but pigs are especially good because they love turtle eggs. They love roots. They love grubs. They love grass. Uh, they, can, they can make a meal out of just about anything, which is not like cattle that rely on uh, leaves and grasses. So pigs, because they reproduce pretty quickly, uh, you know, you might see two or three litters of pigs per year. They reach sexual maturity within six months. Uh, so they have relatively large litters. Cattle might have one calf a year. Their, their gestational period is 10 months. Uh, pigs, three months, three weeks, and three days. So these are animals that very, very quickly can not only exploit those uh, resources, but exploit them in a, a very big way. I recall that at least two different wars started as a result of pigs. Am I right? You're right. And God only knows how many more small conflicts were precipitated by those pigs. But yes, certainly uh, in the 17th century, uh, Metacom's war in New England was a direct result of settler swine and indigenous complaints about the depredations of those swine. Uh, is compounded by the fact that some uh, First Nations people converted to Christianity and attempted to use some of the settler agricultural practices as a means of self-preservation. They, they knew that the numbers were not working in their favor in terms of the settler population growth and the fact that their population was decimated by disease and many other, many other maladies that came from settlers. Uh, what they found was maybe we could do some of those things and maybe we'll be left alone. But it turns out that the Europeans weren't going to let that happen. And so the frustration engendered by First Nations people raising swine and then the irony of having the settlers complain about those uh, farming attempts, that the First Nations people weren't controlling their animals enough, that the First Nations people were causing depredations on the European cornfields, uh, the fact that First Nations people sold pigs, but they received a very poor price for those animals. It's just a perfect storm of uh, the kinds of exploitation that we're used to seeing. Uh, it's not it's not new to see, but that resulted in an incredibly devastating war for both First Nations people and the settlers uh, in New England in the 1670s. So not only does your book you know, cover a lot of ground historically in terms of you know, the time period, it also covers so many different angles. It covers questions of technology, questions of you know, medical interventions and pig practices and so on and so forth. But one of the angles that I found most interesting was sort of the intersection between pig rearing, pig consumption or pork consumption, and social class. 
Can you tell us about the relationship between social class and hierarchy and meat consumption historically? Uh, yes, uh, that was one of the fascinating areas of the book that I wasn't sure if I would include when I started researching it. But, you know, within six months of work, it became very, very apparent that I could not extract the consumption from the production. So I knew I'd have to build that together. And in some ways, those consumption stories were some of the some of the more interesting things, because without the consumption side, it's hard to justify the production side. So they gave meaning to each other as I was researching it. The views about diet, his, historical diet, were very fluid. But in the early modern period, there's some holdovers from the medieval period. And that is the humoral theory of medicine, in which there are four humors in the body, and the relative proportions of those humors in a particular person uh, shaped their personality. It also reflected their social reality as well. So while elites and aristocrats tended to eat everything, wild game, domesticated uh, meats, uh, all sorts of grains and fruits, working people had fewer choices. And so one of the things that reflected that humoral theory is that certain foods have uh, more collar and working people need lots and lots of energy. And so a meat like a, like a piece of fatty pork, according to that theory, was ideal for someone who worked for a living. Uh, an aristocrat didn't need that much protein, that much, that much calorie in their diet. So uh, a working person who's doing lots and lots of field work, a peasant, uh, the aristocrats wrote around a theory that those people were best matched up with food like fat pork. And that's a very, very powerful idea that casts a long, long shadow in North America. Uh, so those Europeans who came here brought those European prejudices with them that, you know, beef was kind of the finest of the meats. Lamb is uh, maybe number two. Pork is also excellent, but it's in a tertiary position and maybe even better for working people. Well, those prejudices persisted here uh, in North America. And I, I think one of the interesting things is how that was racialized. So as uh, race-based slavery takes root in the 17th century uh, and is kind of formalized over the course of about 75 to 100 years, I'm not sure how to say it, but there's a transference of that view about what was good for English working people to what was good for enslaved African people or people of African descent. And so again, that just as we're living with the legacies of slavery in North America today, those dietary elements of slavery have held on a long time. And one of the things that I liked about the book is that it gave me the space to, to talk a little bit about how decisions made in the 17th century about what's the best food for enslaved people in North America or any working person, um, how we live with that today and how health outcomes are stacked by class and race and gender we see it today. Uh, the persistence of a fattier diet in the American South and Midwest that is often 
heavier on pork products than some uh, some other regions. And uh, I tease out how that lasts through sharecropping, how that lasts through uh, the great migrations of African Americans to northern cities, and how even events like World War II, which are cosmopolitan events on the home front, while they break down many of those old patterns, they, they don't eradicate them. You kinda, it's kind of a nice segue to another question that I wanted to ask you. How did pork figure into the civil rights movement? Because you, you, you discuss the ways in which pork consumption among the slave population and their descendants carried through, and then it's, somehow it figures into the civil rights movement. Can you talk a bit about that? I found that very interesting. Yeah, happy to do so. This, um, it's, it's important to note that there are many civil rights movements. Uh, the one that we think about most commonly is the post-World War II civil rights movement that had some degree of success in, in shaking up the status quo. So in terms of the, the kind of picture of America after World War II is one of relative prosperity compared to the 1930s, which was horrible worldwide. Uh, but the United States comes out of World War II in a relatively advantageous position compared to Europe, compared to much of Asia. And so that relative prosperity allows a greater degree of choice in terms of diet. And as many, many African Americans and their allies, both North and South, uh, start to have some degree of success in drawing attention to things that people have been complaining about and talking about for a long time, uh, in part fueled by the rise of television that allows people to see what happens on the streets of Montgomery, Alabama, what allows people to see some of the reporting from the Freedom Riders and the lunch counter protests uh, to break down segregation in the South. Uh, people start to see it and they're able to question it. Civil rights leaders made some conscious choices about what they do in terms of breaking down uh, the kind of systemic barriers that they confronted. I, I think a great example is Fannie Lou Hamer out of Mississippi, Sunflower County, Mississippi. And Fannie Lou Hamer, while she was politically radical, she also took a, a page out of the old Booker T. Washington script that people have to economically help themselves and uplift themselves. Uh, so Fannie Lou Hamer started a pig bank in which people could come and get the loan of a bread uh, guilt that after it had pigs would become a sow. And as long as they returned a guilt back to the bank, they could have a degree of food security and prosperity that they might not otherwise have. And ultimately thousands of pigs came from Fannie Lou Hamer's pig project in Mississippi. That was a degree of, uh, of economic choice. Again, it echoed some of the old dietary preferences of uh, the American South, but it also had kind of this innovative aspect in which there's an economic uplift through sharing that, uh, that I've, I've found quite striking. Uh, other people reject the old, the old food ways. Uh, you find that uh, by the mid to late 1960s, there are a lot of people who have said, listen, pork, and pork products played a role in our exploitation. And we're going to reject that. And whether that was through the Nation of Islam, which of course had the religious prescriptions on pork uh, consumption, 
or whether it was just uh, a symbol of that exploitation that people rejected. A lot of people said, I'm done with pork. I'm not going to cook it anymore. Uh, again, that's complicated because there's so many different iterations of that experience. Uh, one of the things I wrote about was how in northern cities, people lost their southernness. And one of the ways to reclaim it was to uh, eat soul food, what became known as soul food, which was oh, everything from greens to uh, like collard greens or mustard greens. Uh, it might very well have been eating organs from the pig, like uh, chitlins. That's the uh, intestines that are cleaned, scraped, and cooked. Uh, that was a typical Southern dish for many people that, again, in the cities in the 1970s, uh, that was a way of, of connecting with your roots. Uh, and my use there is, is totally, totally deliberate because that's when Alex Haley's uh, book has come out about, listen, we, we have a history and it's an important history. And for African-Americans, it's been neglected. It hasn't been taught in the schools, but the food preferences can be a way of connecting with your roots. So the, the 60s and 70s are a tumultuous time in which people are making a lot of choices about rejecting tradition deliberately to say we want a new start and also selectively drawing on some of those traditions to say, what is it for me to be someone who's displaced from my roots and not just the post-World War II roots of moving to Detroit for a defense job or working at uh, an aircraft factory, but as a displaced person from the African diaspora. I'm going to move back in time a bit here. Um, you did mention cities, so maybe that's a, a little bit of a connection. Because I, I wanted to ask you about the role that pigs played in early, early urban America. Um, so we often think, you know, pigs, they live on farms, maybe on an open range, but they also lived in cities. What were pigs doing in cities in the early urban United States? Yeah, you're quite right. People, uh, people tend to forget that cities of the colonial era were filled with horses and oxen and chickens and other fowl and, and pigs. Those animals were service animals in many ways, uh, not only pulling the carts and the carriages, but also a, a good example in the colonial period was that uh, in New England, in those fishing towns, you've got a lot of fish guts that have to be disposed of. And so frequently in New England towns, those would be collected and fed to pigs. And so you'd get an economic benefit from the waste. So in that sense, these animals are a service animal just like the horse that pulls the cart. Uh, and, and we don't think of that in that way, but frequently they're consuming all sorts of waste in colonial and early American cities. Uh, so if there is in fact a dairy that uh, is constructed in the city, uh, late, 19, or late 18th, early 19th uh, century, well, there's lots and lots of food that's fed to those cattle and cattle are ruminants, so they pass a lot of grain through their system that's undigested, right? They're used to eating leafs, leafy, leafy greens. And if you feed them grain, like brewer's waste, then they're going to pass a lot of that through their system. And the pigs are perfect for cleaning up uh, and getting 
double duty out of that grain by eating the waste uh, or by sifting through the waste to find the undigested grain. Uh, so animals play a, a wide ranging role in society in those cities and pigs in particular are useful for the household. Uh, it, it's not, it wouldn't be strange to walk into a city and find a small pigsty outside uh, the door of a city dweller. And that pig will consume the kitchen slop that soon that pig may be turned loose to uh, forage off the streets for themselves a little bit. They might even uh, sift through the household excrement from the, its inhabitants to find undigested bits of food. So pigs are omnipresent. They're useful to everyone. Every single person in the city benefits from these pigs, even though the pigs bring their own problems like waste um, and, and, and their own right? droppings. And they smell horrible. Uh, they can, um, but, they, uh, but there's a change. And that change is going to come as we see some of the social differentiation and geographical segmentation that comes with the growth of a, of a middle and upper class. And it's much easier for wealthy people who have drawn some physical distance between their residents to start to complain about things that their, their parents and grandparents' generation wouldn't have given much thought about. Those pigs and their stink and their mess would have been an inconvenience. But by the early 19th century, uh, as uh, wealthy people are starting to separate a little bit due to streetcars and all sorts of transportation developments, and the fact that those cities are growing like crazy, they start to complain. And in New York City is the most famous example in which there are multiple court cases about where those pigs can be and should be. And it really comes to a head uh, in the 1850s and 60s when the city of New York declares war on pigs and says, we need to get these animals off the streets. Um, Charles Dickens wrote uh, about his visit to America. He said, beware the hogs because they'll come out of nowhere. And if they're going fast enough, and if you're between them and where they want to be, they'll knock you on your backside. Uh, many, many foreigners wrote about just how the streets of American cities were, were filled with animals. But it was a contentious uh, class-based issue because poor people relied on that pork when there was an economic downturn. That, was, that pork was in some ways their savings account in a time in which there was no savings account. So they could eat when there were no wages. And that was a common refrain by often Democratic Party politicians who had aligned themselves with oftentimes uh, Catholic and immigrant groups and the largely Protestant teetotaling Whigs and Republicans that came in, in the wake of the Whigs were often quite nativist and said, we need to clean up the immigrants. So cleaning up the pigs for those elites was a way of actually cleaning up the immigrants. Very interesting. Are you an advocate of bringing pigs back to the city today? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great question. Uh, 
Maybe to Calgary. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me just say no comment uh, <laughs> on that. Any, any cohabitation uh, brings risks. And, right. uh, you know, some places the stakes are pretty low. We find for chickens, the stakes are pretty low. The backyard chicken keepers. Uh, it's often an annoyance to have the rooster. But really, the waste problem is minor and easily to manage. And the benefit of having eggs is great. But once you start looking at an animal that at full growth is about 250 pounds and produces more urine and feces in a day than the average human, uh, then I think we've got some real cautions. And pigs are notoriously difficult to contain. Uh, you know, there's a reason why there are so many in the street. Uh, it's not that there weren't often enclosures for them. There often were those little pigsties at the at the back door or in your back uh, back garden. There were pigsties for all of those industries, like the tanning industry and some of these other industries that had lots and lots of bones. Uh, the butchers they had lots and lots of waste. There were pig ranches in the city, but it's hard to keep pigs in, especially given the technology of the 19th and 18th centuries. So. Uh, they are wicked smart and they like to go their own way. Yeah. So, I, I didn't know that's why pigs had those little rings in their noses. Yes. Uh, certainly in the colonial period, any group of pigs that was kept close to the city or even a small town, they would want to make sure that the snouts, that uh, cartilage, on the snout would be would have a ring in it so that it would cause some degree of discomfort to the animal if they were trying to use their snout to really cause damage it's not going it, to it's not going to hurt them if they are just grazing but if they're trying to remove fences or any kind of barrier it will cause discomfort and the idea is a ringed hog will be a hog that's much easier to manage less likely to cause damage so yes, there are lots and lots of laws about uh, making sure that the hogs were ringed to uh, to minimize property loss. Right. Well, that's a nice transition. I mean, let's let's talk a bit about how pig farming is. Pig farming the right word? Is that sure. is that good? Yeah. Okay. Let's say pig farming. Let's talk about how pig farming has changed since that time when people had to put little rings on their noses to today. I mean, that's a long time, but. So how does pig farming, how is it different today from it was back then? That's a great question and a question that uh, we'll use the next three hours to address here on... Uh, it's a big question. <laughs> well, let's break it down a bit then. Like what, what's yeah. it like to work on a pig farm today or what's it like to near, live near a pig farm today? What does the pig well, farm look like? You know, when uh, we talk about husbandry... 200 years ago, just like most people 200 years ago spent most of their time outdoors, so did most of the animals. And one of the things that uh, made hogs very attractive in the settlement period, up, up through the end of the 19th century, was that hogs as omnivores, as incredibly fast, uh, they're well-armed, they, they have uh, these eye teeth that grow into tusks that can really cause some damage if they're in a fight. Again, they, they'd rather run, but if they're backed into a corner, uh, they can really hurt you. 
uh, those animals were ideal for a settler society. They didn't need a lot of inputs. And when you think about North America, North America, where from the settler's perspective, there's ample land, but there's very little labor. An animal like a pig is, is great because they can be out on their own for a large portion of the year. You can provide some food for them periodically to keep them coming back so that when the fall comes, you can actually enclose them for several months and get them fattened up for slaughter or market. Uh, that's really the, the playbook for hog husbandry in much of America in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s. Not everywhere, but for much of America, that low input aspect of raising pigs makes them very attractive. One of the things that uh, that's going to change that, that's going to give us an industry in which those animals tend to spend a lot of time indoors, uh, a time in which we put more and more animals together, is there are going to be a couple things that happen. One is all those pigs out on their own do cause a lot of damage. And so in the 19th century, there are lots and lots of reformers to try and get people to enclose animals. Uh, typically, the burden for property damage was on the person who had a crop. They had to fence their crop to keep animals out. That's going to change. Legal reformers want to shift that burden onto the husbandrymen who have the animals and say, it's your burden to keep the animals fenced in. And once you do that, uh, you really require a greater degree of input. You need more grain. You need much more housing for those animals. You need more care. And really that kind of late 19th century uh, is where that has critical mass to start moving, moving hog husbandry on a large scale towards centralization. There's also some language that goes with the Industrial Revolution starting in the late 19th century that reconceptualizes animals as machines. People write about the, the hog is a machine for turning grain into flesh. And that language, I think, is very, very instructive. It, it doesn't mean that we flip a switch as a culture. They're not able to achieve that kind of concentration and large-scale production overnight. There are a lot of barriers that are cultural, economic, that are in the way. But the late 19th century, you start to see that reconceptualization. And that enables people to look at inputs and outputs. Once you do that, you're starting to say, what's the best way to get the maximum, maximum return? That had not been the case when those hogs were out on their own. The very fact that they were there and that you had pork at the end of the year was often a victory. Now we start to say, how much gain can we get out of a particular pound of feed, whether it's root vegetables, whether it's corn, whether it's a protein supplement like soy. Um, so that redefinition starts in the 19th century. Oh, it, it starts earlier, but it gets critical mass in the late 19th century. And really in about 70 years, by the 1960s, we see what I would call kind of a triumph of the enclosure system of raising animals, where we say we're going to have a gestational barn and those sows that are pregnant will be in there 
so that we can keep an eye on them. And we can make sure that their diet is optimal for delivery. Then we're going to move them prior to delivery to a farrowing barn where they'll actually give birth to those animals. And very quickly, those animals will then move to a different barn. And you might see four or five different barns in which you can actually exercise better control over diet, medication. Uh, again, that doesn't really happen without conceptualizing animals as a machine. And again, because of the Great Depression, because of uh, the kind of the diffuse nature of uh, American settlement, because of dietary preferences, we're not able to achieve that, like flipping a switch. But really by about 1960, it's much harder to find the kind of old fashioned pig raising operation. So it sounds like you're describing the uh, commodification of pigs, right? Because in the colonial era, you had poor people could, could have a nice little pig sty and it could be their economic security uh, blanket for a time of low wages or unemployment or whatever it may be. But now we're having mass concentrations of pigs under a single barn. So uh, that raises a question for me. I mean, when we talk about concentration, oftentimes when we think about concentration in industry, we're thinking about like concentration of ownership. So do we see a similar sort of concentration of ownership in the hog hus husbandry industry as we see in other industries? That's a, a great question. And the, the short answer is yes. I just want to come back with one caution about pigs as commodities. And sure. it, of course, they really, they really had been commodities in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, one of the points I make in the book is that without American pork, it's very difficult to imagine the British Navy being as successful as it was in ruling the waves. Without American pork, the working class of Europe would have had a somewhat different diet during the Industrial Revolution. So pork is a commodity, but again, I think it's a question of degree rather than of kind. So that's my qualification to your, to your point uh, earlier. Uh, it, in terms of your second point, which I've now forgotten. It was about concentration of ownership. Oh, right, sorry. Is there a Monsanto of the hog husbandry industry? <laughs> <laughs> we, we do see that kind of concentration. Uh, a lot of it comes out of North Carolina and broad, more broadly speaking, the American South. Uh, one of the fascinating innovations that's linked to the pork story is chickens. And during the 1930s, the poultry industry underwent a dramatic change in which producers who were taking cropland out of production for the 1930s federal commodity programs to reduce production so that hopefully prices would increase enough so that farmers could make a living during the depression. Uh, those farmers had a little more time on their hands. And so one of the things that Southerners hoped to do was to get more farmers raising chickens at a larger scale. So Jesse Jewell of Gainesville, Georgia is one of, an early pioneer in this. He basically says, I will give you chickens, give you feed, raise them to maturity. I'll give you chicks, raise them to maturity, feed them. I will buy them from you. And we deduct out the costs of production that you incurred. 
it, it's a form of sharecropping in a way. And that gets uh, its root in the 1930s. It helps spread poultry production. Uh, it's fairly popular because uh, a relatively cash poor people are able to have some economic activity that replaces some of the other act economic activity that the government has taken away. Uh, the pork industry will start to mimic that in the post-World War II period. So Wendell Shays of North Carolina is a great example in which he tries to, uh, I've got one source in the book that says we're going to try and chickenify the pork industry. And they will do that similar kind of arrangement in which they'll advance some of the inputs and those farmers will raise the animals and then Shays and others would come in and, and buy them, buy them back. So the farmers might have to put up a, a barn. They might have to uh, invest in some infrastructure, but they could get relatively predictable income coming back. And so Wendell Shays in the 1970s and 80s takes this, uh, it's going to be known as the North Carolina model, and it will be imitated elsewhere. But that's part of that concentration of the industry. It, it doesn't happen uniformly in the American Midwest, where there, there's a real tradition of widespread land ownership. Many Midwestern farmers will resist it. They don't think it's great for them uh, because they, they would lose some degree of control about marketing. They lose some control uh, about the production decisions along the way that they don't want to seed. And they're already capitalized to where they might have the hog barn. They might already have some of the facilities and they don't see that they need that kind of model. Uh, but the Shays model is very, very popular. The, the kinds of integration, the vertical integration is going to get uh, in hyperdrive in the 1990s. And it's going to be fueled by a period of low low commodity prices. Uh, the 1980s, there's going to be a big washout of farmers. There's a farm crisis. But in the 90s, it's particularly bad for pork producers. And that will result in kind of a, a flushing out. And many people start to say, there's really only one way to succeed. And some of the advice that they're getting is, you have to lower your per unit costs. And the only way you can do that is achieving some economies of scale. And so the 90s, you start to see that consolidation really pick up speed. So it, it, I, I talk about it in the book uh, in which the percentage of farms that have pigs in Iowa, which is a kind of a classic American pork raising state, drops precipitously. And of the farms that keep pigs, a greater and greater share of them are large scale. So not only does pig keeping become more scarce, but the small scale pig producer becomes scarcer. Okay. So we're in the middle of a global pandemic, COVID-19, everyone knows. Um, you have an entire chapter of the book dedicated to the problem of disease on pig farms. What kind of relationship do you see between capitalism, modern agricultural practices, and the emergence of new infectious diseases, both among animals and humans. Well, it's it's baked into it's baked into our DNA and the DNA of any pathogen that an all-you-can-eat buffet is often optimal. So when you bring a lot of animals together, you create an all-you-can-eat buffet for hog cholera, 
or H1N1 or any number, uh, poor sign epidemic diarrhea. Uh, so you create optimal conditions by bringing a lot of animals together. We could only do that, bring the kinds of multi-thousand animal units together once we had antibiotics. And antibiotics have been a great blessing and a curse uh, for the livestock industry because it's facilitated ever larger concentrations of animals and it's encouraged the overuse of antibiotics. So in terms of the risks of capitalism and agriculture, uh, I think that's exhibit A, that uh, the desire for scale and low-cost meat uh, again, low-cost food is, is great in many ways, right? When we spend less of our income on food, we have more for other things like savings and education and all sorts of things that are desirable. But we also know with low-cost food comes a, a bit of callousness that goes with it. When the food is low-cost, it's easy to turn a blind eye to the externalities of agriculture. And the problems of who's actually doing the, the raising of those animals and paying the price uh, in terms of their respiratory uh, health, working in those uh, facilities. So, you know, in terms of health, in terms of disease, as long as we prescribe low-cost meat as a good solution for our society, as long as we are encouraging the growth of large-scale production, we will really have to contend with the continued problems of livestock disease. And we're going to see new ones, right? My book is, we spend most of a chapter on hog cholera, which is not really much of a problem anymore. But that story of hog cholera, as I say at the end of the chapter, is kind of a stand-in for all of the kinds of diseases that we have wanted to control and will need to control in the future. So again, our, our concentration brings with it lots and lots of problems. Again, I, I call it the all-you-can-eat buffet problem. It's great, and it's horrible all at the same time. Contradictory. Yep. This has been, for me, a very interesting interview. I, I just have one final question. And I would like you to help me understand popular culture's recent obsession with bacon. Oh, it's a fascinating story in which uh, bacon, which now commands a pretty good price at the retailers, bacon for a while was seen a drag on pork profits. Uh, we really got obsessed in the post-war period with fat as North America became more sedentary uh, the growth of the middle class in which more and more people were sitting for a living in their work, uh, in which food became cheaper and we were able to eat more, a time in which all sorts of new commercially prepared products off the shelf were available with lots of salt, lots of sugar. And we combated that obesity concern by cutting meat, uh, by cutting fat out of the animal. So beef and pork we work very hard as a culture to reduce the fat in those animals and imitate chicken, which is seen as a low fat meat. And as we get more and more successful of taking more and more fat out of the carcass, bacon is seen as increasingly unhealthy. If you lived through the 1970s, 
we started using a lot of margarine because we saw animal fat in the form of butter is unhealthy. Uh, steaks had to be trimmed. Pork chops had to be trimmed. We wanted less of the intramuscular fat. And a fatty product like bacon, while it's still consumed, became not a premium product. And as a result, people looked around for ways to put more bacon in stuff. And the fast food industry led the way. In the 1980s, it was common for fast food restaurants to lay in lots and lots of bacon. And they juiced our natural palate quest for fat. And I, I think you can look at the, the 80s as a turning point uh, for our current obsession with bacon. And, it, and it's seen as a nostalgia food. It's what grandma and grandpa used to eat. And uh, as a result, we've got bacon festivals everywhere and bacon and all sorts of charcuterie uh, are wildly popular in a way today that when, when I was a kid in the 1970s, uh, that stuff was stigmatized. You even see bacon on t-shirts. It's everywhere. T-shirts. Pictures movies. of bacon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that was uh, a lot of fun for me. Uh, oh, you know what? I lied. I have one final question. Sure. Where can people get your book? Oh, well, uh, the book is published by West Virginia University Press. You can certainly go to their website uh, if you want to go direct to direct to the press. That's always encouraged. Uh, you can find it lots of places. I encourage you to ask your uh, local retailer. If you have an independent bookstore, that would be great. Of course, the big chains will carry it. It's, it's often discounted on the big chains. But uh, really, one of the greatest services, if, if listeners want to request that their local public library obtain a copy, uh, I think that's a great democratic way to increase access for the book. So if, if nothing else, let your local librarian know that uh, you'd like to see Capitalist Pigs on the shelf of your library. It's a great title, by the way. Thank you. I, I wish I could take credit for it. Uh, oh, we'll just do it anyway. <laughs> I had just a friend read the manuscript and uh, said, I, I think I know the real title of your book. <laughs> he said, keep the pigs pork and power. But you really, this book is really Capitalist Pigs because you're you're all over it. Well, you have uh, so a good friend. Thanks to Bart Elmore for that. There you go. Okay. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank Professor you Anderson. so much. It has been a lot of fun uh, speaking with you guys and uh, I look forward to uh, look forward to following you. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so yet. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, Podcast Addict, or any other podcast app. Also, remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. The support of our patrons helps us create political food for thought for all the world to consume. So don't delay. Become a Patreon supporter today. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again on October 1st. We hope you keep well until then.